This is the RunPod Option. I'm Marty. You can follow us on Twitter at RunPod Option or email us RunPodOption at gmail.com. And we have another special guest, part of our interview series. We have Matt Brown at Matt Brown EP on Twitter, formerly of SB Nation, author of the What If, a closer look at college football's great questions, and proprietor of the Extra Points newsletter. How are you doing, Matt? Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be on here and a uh... I'm happy to be doing it. Matt, sincerely, uh, I am grateful for you coming on, and I didn't want to fanboy before the interview, but I'll let you know now, you are genuinely, I think, I know one of my favorite college football writers, one of our other co-hosts, Jeff, he's actually a Michigan fan, uh, and he really enjoys your work too, which I think is probably the highest of the two praises there. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. That that really means a lot to me. I've been... Uh... Trying to do something a little bit different. There's a lot of really smart people that write about college football, and I, I try to find my own little lane there, and I'm, I'm appreciative that some people seem to like it. Awesome. Well, well, they certainly do, and let's kind of talk about how you got in that lane, Matt. What kind of, uh, I guess, what got you into college football, if you want to kind of do an introduction of yourself, what got you writing about it, maybe it's a player, a game, a moment where you grew up, whatever it might be, go ahead and kick off. Sure. So I grew up in... Licking County, Ohio, which is just east of Columbus, uh, grew up pretty close to a regional campus of Ohio State. And so, you know, naturally there, everybody is uh, indoctrinated, I think, into Ohio State football <laughs> and, um, and, and, and football in general. Right. Like my my first journalism job was covering preps. And Licking County might produce entirely one D1 kid a year for football. And it's probably going to be some, you know, backbench uh, Mac offensive linemen and the, the these high school games are going to draw two, three, four, five, six thousand people when the town itself only has like two or three. So it's football itself is just this, this gigantic cultural institution that's fascinated me. And I kind of fell into journalism a little bit. I don't have a journalism degree. I, uh, I've done a couple of different gigs. I, I taught elementary school for a little while. I, I've, I was, a worked in political campaigns for a little while. I've done some HR work for a little while. Um, and kind of backed into this, which made SB Nation perfect because that was the place that, that took all of the guys that didn't go to Medill and looked yeah. at football, you know, in, in a different way. And I, I think that all that varied experience, both in doing different kind of jobs and the way I grew up, um, really made me a more effective college football writer. You know, I, I, I tell some folks this. My, uh, my mom uh, immigrated from Brazil. Um, you know, we're like the only Brazilians in like, in like rural Ohio. Um, and she worked in, uh, in, in K-12 education almost her entire career. And we spent a lot of time uh, when we worked together and early in my teaching career, you know, uh, going to these, these very different school districts from the places where most journalists grow up and they're places where a lot of um, D1 athletes come from. And so I, I think seeing how education policy and how K-12 education and how property values and demographics and these other institutions all intersect to play a role in football recruiting and playing a role in, in running some of these higher these institutions of higher learning. And that was part of my background growing up, and it's always been a part of how I've evaluated and, and looked at this sport. And over the last couple of years, that's been the majority of what I've been writing about. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll go and I'll get in the depth chart and I'll, I'll break down a too deep of a Big Ten team. Um as much as just as well as anybody else, I think, but I really love digging into the history of the sport and how all the off the field stuff impacts what we see on the field, whether that's religion, whether that's economics, whether that's politics, whether that's, um, you know, the, the institutions themselves, uh, for, for these universities and their administrative policy that plays a big role in who's good and who's not and decisions that were made in the, in the twenties and thirties and forties and impact what goes on here. And that's what extra points is about. That's I think my favorite beat. And I've been fortunate that I've had a chance to really kind of dig into that over the past couple of years. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic beat and kind of building off that. So I was, I was born and raised in, in Dallas, Texas, and I, I grew up on the suburbs of Dallas truly. And mm -hmm. for my whole life, Dallas, inner Dallas, their high school football was maybe one team and it was Dallas Carter. And that was just because of the history. But the suburbs sucked away a lot of talent because, like you said, economically or whatever else that are making up these neighborhoods, 
you have the the for lack of a better term the white flight that happened you know 45 50 years ago sure. and it's caused some football power regions to completely shift power now it's south lake carroll now it's allen high school like where kyler murray went and they have a you know 90 million dollar high school football stadium and allen wasn't really a blip on the radar 30 years ago until people started kind of moving away from the city so yeah i think that's what probably interests me with that beat a lot that you do or the beat you do the writing that you do because kind of seeing it i grew up in mckinney and north of McKinney, it's nothing. You have towns like Salina that have a few thousand people. And then south in Allen, where there's two or three hundred thousand people. And they're one high school for all that, for that, for all those people. They have one high school with four campuses and about 1,500 people per graduating class that they're running through there. And it's, it's really just a crazy dynamic. Yeah, that, that sounds like that, that's bigger than some FBS institutions. That sounds like it's bigger than Tulsa. Yeah, it, I, I highly suggest anyone who wants to see a hell of a stadium, look at the Allen High School football stadium. They have they used to be a, a pipeline to Arkansas. The former uh, Dick brothers of Arkansas quarterback fame both came from Allen. And they're allowed to, right? They have, they have like a B and a C team for their football because they have so many students. And they yeah. can kind of refine really, really good talent. So... Jumping into this, uh, we'll, we'll start with your book. The, it's called What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions. You can get on Amazon. I'm sure probably any other book retailer. Matt, is there any other? Oh, I think that there's probably a digital version. Did you do one on tape yet? No, I didn't end up recording one, but there is a there is a Kindle version of the book. Just about every wholesaler sells it. Uh, you know, if you want to wait till we're in a position to actually go into stores – uh, bookstores again, uh, large chains either have it or will be able to get it for you. Um, and there's a good chance your, your public library might have a copy too. So I, I've read through some of this book. I haven't finished it yet. I'll be completely honest, but some of the things that you cover are what if UAB hired Jimbo Fisher or what if Michigan never rejoined the big 10, some really cool historical hypotheticals and some really neat writing about early days and big transition periods within college football. Yeah, I, honestly, the stuff that was that was the most fun for me to research and write and, and talk to folks about generally happened before 1970. Like <laughs> one of the cool things about college football is that we've been we've been doing it for 150 years, and some of those things have changed dramatically. Right, the rules of this game have have changed substantially, um, but a lot of the things that we argue about are the same. We're arguing about the how 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 we can kind of combine academics and athletics. We're arguing about uh, how, how, what kind of benefits that, that uh, students should get or, or what constitutes cheating and recruiting. We're yeah. arguing about television. We're arguing about some of these same silly rivalries you know, since, since, since the turn of the century. And a, a lot of those decisions that were made by administrators or university presidents or coaches or these kind of little flippant things a long time ago have had I think really spiraling decisions, you know, the early, the early Michigan one, I think is a good example. I think a lot of folks don't realize that for a couple of years, Michigan was depending on who you talk to either asked to leave the big 10 kicked out of the big 10 or, or Michigan left in a huff and they started playing a more independent schedule. And that really opened the door for Ohio state to join the big 10, which at that point uh, wasn't really considered much of a power program. And with the Big Ten blackballing Michigan, the Wolverines needed some games, and they couldn't get them all in New England. So, so enter the Buckeyes. Um, so, do you, would you say that Ohio State was the rebound chick in that scenario? Is there a <laughs> Ohio, Ohio State was very available, and and um, <laughs> they were open to discussions. They, they were they were open to discussions, and and that rivalry ended up blossoming, and that's what helped get Ohio State in, in that conference, rather than kind of toiling in the Mac. A, a lot of people don't, don't realize this. And it was around the same time period that because of maybe it was racism or classism or, you know, just pigheadedness. That's what kept Notre Dame out of the big Ten because the Irish wanted in. Um, and they were a, a peer already, already at the very beginning of the school athletically to some of those big Ten institutions. And so really? digging into this stuff is, is fascinating for me. And I think it will make anybody else a, a much more informed uh, college football fan. I, honestly, I think UAB and, and something about the 2007 season were really the only two kind of modern hypotheticals that I, I delve I dove into. There were there were a couple other ones I thought about, but for for me, I think the most interesting ones were you're generally older. 
Okay, so so we'll we'll get to two that that I'd kind of sent you to think about that we'll we'll answer, but since you mentioned just how there's only been there's only a couple of chapters that kind of cover modern you know air quotes modern day football, you know post ninety eight or so, are there yeah. any things that you wished you had included in the book and or maybe that have happened since that would have been you think maybe a fantastic chapter to add, maybe a second version of the book that you may or may not be working on. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think I'm going to try to write a second book, but probably not about what if questions. I've, I've had a couple of other ideas. And a, a lot of people have suggested, you know, what if the, the Pac-12 was able to pull off becoming the Pac-16 and taking Texas and taking Tech and Oklahoma mm-hmm. and everything. And I was a little afraid to, to really dig deep into that because what I found in writing about conference realignment is that people tend to get a lot more honest when there's a lot more space in between those decisions. And when those decisions are still relatively fresh and honestly a sore spot for some of these schools and a lot of those decision makers still have jobs – they're not likely to be as candid. And so I felt that if I'd written about that, and I have a couple of guesses about what might have happened, um, the official account that drops 10 years later would, would, would be, look very different. And that might that might change my, my accounting. Whereas, hey, you go back to the airplane conference, like all those people are dead <laughs> or or they've moved on. And I mean, like, I could call up Navy or talk to Penn State and they'll tell you all sorts of stuff about it because who cares? Yeah, um, Yost is not walking through that door to correct it. To correct oh, no, and, and, and Lord, would he? Like that, that, <laughs> that man was – if, if there are a couple of people you dig in here and who, if they knew if they had Twitter accounts, they would have been just absolutely insufferable. Fielding Yost is, is definitely one of those guys. Um, very, very much yeah, adjacent maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like that one's interesting. What would have happened if uh, Rich Rodriguez had taken the Alabama job? was obviously a, a pretty huge one too. And I felt like there, I, I originally planned on that and I dug into it and I couldn't find quite as enough really good information. And I, for me, I thought that overlapped a lot with the question about the 2007 West Virginia pit game. And I didn't want to, to go over too much, but clearly like that, that decision changed, obviously not just Rich Rod's career and Michigan and what happened in Michigan or Alabama, but the balance of power probably within the entire Southeast. So that would be a pivotal, more modern moment. I think that probably touched 20 programs. Okay. Well, let's, let's have fun with it. Let's kick into the first one since you kind of alluded to it with the PAC 16, it's not directly related, but it's kind of directly related. Um, and that's just, what if the Longhorn network never happened? Because I think by all accounts, or at least it's perceived, what kicked off A&M picking up their bags and, uh, and leaving, leaving Texas behind to join the SEC, it was obviously a great decision by them for money, right? Like it's a no-brainer, but added the, the Longhorn Network seemed to really upset a lot of people because as the way I understand it, the Longhorn Network basically ensured not only a recruiting edge for the University of Texas, but also a financial one in in the deal with ESPN that something like TCU or Texas Tech would not benefit from as if it were, say, an SEC network or a Pac-12 network? This is a really, really good question. And yeah, I I think I would agree with that was there there were definitely some some cultural tensions I think regarding Texas and you know with Nebraska and with A and M independent of the Longhorn Network but that was really the the missile that kind of blew a lot of of what that conference looked like apart and and sunk the the Pac sixteen my my thinking here is that if the Longhorn Network didn't happen I do think ESPN was committed to experimenting with a television linear television network centered around one brand and there's not very many schools that would have been able to pull that off. And if it, it, it wouldn't have been Texas, um, I, I think there's a chance they might have called some people up in the Pac-12 and maybe tried it with one of the Los Angeles schools and try to pry them apart because there, there was uh, there were some challenges there. They might have tried it with Florida State um, because at, at that point, you know, there, were, there was a there was a real moment around that time. We thought the ACC was going to collapse um, yeah. before they, they, they signed that secondary grant, uh, grant of rights agreement. So maybe you're looking at North Carolina or Duke. There's there's a couple of brands that you might have been able to do it. And it's unfortunate from ESPN's perspective that um, the Longhorn Network wasn't as much of a commercial success because not only did you have – you're launching a linear network, I think really as that 
the profitability of those is sunsetting. You know, cord cutting would would definitely accelerate um, over the next couple of, of years. But also, Texas on the field kind of sucked. You, you had a terrible athletic director hire. You had multiple unfortunate hires on the with with uh, with, with football and some and some big recruiting misses. And you you make that kind of bet thinking you're going to have a perennial top 10 team. And instead they had to spend a bunch of years with, uh, you know, selling Texas baseball and trying to replay the 06 Rose bowl every six hours. <laughs> yeah. Which um, is, you can set your clock to that Rose bowl. Aaron, yeah. I, I, it, it is definitely on every week. And, and don't get me wrong. It's a hell of a football game. Yeah. Um, no doubt. <laughs> I've watched it multiple times myself. Um, so my, my immediate guess here is, yeah, we probably have some kind of pack 16 and I think ESPN takes a whack at one of the larger ACC brands. Uh, and so that means you might end up with an American that has a couple of those big 12 teams in it. Maybe you, TCU or West Virginia are, are in some kind of American configuration and maybe some of those other bigger ACC brands end up in the Big Ten, which was Delaney's last gasp anyway. Um, would that be better for college football or not? I don't know. It really, really kind of depends on where you live. I, th- I think there's a pretty compelling argument right now that any league greater than 14 teams has a lot of negative uh, externalities for fans. Um, but Pac-12 would probably be a lot better. Yeah, there's there's the, the scheduling conflicts, I think, as as your former uh, co-worker and, and someone I'm a fan of, Bill Connolly, talks about pods because the Georgia and Texas A&M never playing until this past year is, is such, a, such a weird byproduct of those bigger conferences which I don't think I ever would have assumed happening. I do like to think that the Pac-16 happens and ESPN goes, you know what, let's do the, the Trojan and Longhorn Network, and then both programs just go down the tubes for the next for the <laughs> next 12 years. And I just- mean, we, we, we joke about it. I think the chances that NBC or ESPN or somebody else takes a run at those LA schools and tries to pitch them on something big and stupid in the next couple of years, I don't think it's zero. There's too much money at Disney for not to for for not to at least be poked around. I would I would totally agree. So so we'll move to the next one. You spoke about the 2007 season, and I had uh, what if Alabama hired Rich Rodriguez instead of Nick Saban in 07, which is kind of a reminder to some people that Saban was the the backup plan or the 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 hire after Rich turned it down, or whether Rich's wife said she wouldn't go. Whichever report you want to believe there. But I also have highlighted here uh, some other openings and hires that happened that same season. So in that same season that Nick Saban got hired, you had D'Antonio at Michigan State. You had Butch Davis at North Carolina. You had Steve Craigthorpe at Louisville. I'm just picking bigger programs here. Uh, Randy Shannon at Miami. uh, Dennis Erickson at Arizona State. And Jim Harbaugh at Stanford. What if also... Nick Saban had taken that Miami job because he just got done kicking it around with the Dolphins. It almost makes too much sense. Are we talking about the U? Would he allow the turnover chain <laughs> to happen? Oh no, no. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure if I could have seen that that matchup happening because in order for Saban, you know, post NFL, post LSU, to go anywhere, especially knowing how that LSU tenure ended, he would need to have an administration that is 1000% completely bought in on becoming a football power. And Miami historically really hasn't been that way. They actually kind of became a football powerhouse by accident. And you know, you're not willing to have any kind of on-campus stadium. You you have a really huge chunk of your alumni base that does not care about football at all because they're they're international students, so they're from the Northeast. It's it's not really the school for South Florida. Um, in many, in many ways, that's, that's more of Florida international or, or more of some of these other, other state schools. Yeah. I, I think it, that, that, that's a marriage that I would see having a hard time lasting. Um, excuse me. I think it would be more likely that he just took a year off and wait for Florida state, uh, or wait for, uh, Clemson or wait for another big sec opening if he wasn't going to go to Alabama. Um, so you know, that, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I always thought the, the kind of fun thing here, what would have happened if, if Richrod goes and he takes that the Alabama job and that means Greg Schiano ends up as the head coach at Michigan. Um, yep. I, I think probably ends up working out better than Rich Rodriguez and, 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 you know, forestalls Brady Hoke, but I don't think it, I don't think that's a happy marriage. Uh, Chiano tends to, um, 
how should I phrase this? Um, alienate everybody around him eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, he does. It, it does feel like uh, of all the food you put in the refrigerator, his goes bad the quickest. It, yes. And if you're Rutgers and there's no other food in the refrigerator and you're convinced that this is the only man on earth who can help you, that'll work <laughs> for four or five years. But, um, you know, it, it, he, he, he ran out of welcome at Ohio State. He was, he, I'm sure he would have done it at Michigan. Um, it's a, it's, that's a weird, it's a weird, a weird group of group of uh, group of coaching changes there. But I, I mean, I'm sure if Saban went to Miami, they'd probably at least make a championship game, but it would be very difficult for me to see him knowing what I know about Miami's administration circa 2007, 2008, 2009. I don't think that would last for very long. Okay. And kind of just building, building on it. So when I was doing some of the research for that question, I wanted to think, all right, well, what other positions were open, right? That's why I started listing off these names. Sure. And I came across a note that the year before Stanford brought on Jim Harbaugh, he actually got uh, rejected for the Tulane job the year before. He did. Man, Tulane has had such terrible luck <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with, with coaches and athletic directors. I mean, really up until up until Willie, because they, they – they, uh, this, is, this is a dumb question. They, they, had, they, they, they could have kept Rich Rod. Um, when he was their offensive coordinator and he wanted to stay and, and that didn't end up working out. Um, that would have been perfect. Har- Harbaugh would have just, just been excellent at Tulane. Um, and, and that, that was, that was exactly who they would have needed right about then because um, this would have been right before Katrina, like who, who a, a detail oriented, extremely good player development a guy. You can, the whole institution can rally behind academically oriented. I think he would have done a, a really strong job. Um, and a coach that's very willing to be the face. It seems oh yeah. like, I think that's an underrated, it can be overrated and underrated. You know, th- there's, there's coaching from the shadows and developing and doing your thing at big or small schools, but Harbaugh is more than happy to be that guy, the spearhead of the ship. And I think Tulane could have absolutely benefited greatly from it. Yeah, that's uh, they, they they had their chance at locking down some really big name guys. I think a couple of times over the last twenty five years, and they've uh, they messed it up. C- certainly, Michigan would not have been an option for Harbaugh. You know that that early on, he was a uh, a guy that had uh, had a couple of good years at a Pioneer League school, um, yeah. and had. Would would later say some kind of disparaging things about Michigan's academics, and it took a, a really Herculean effort to repair that to get him to come back. But what he was doing in the in the late two thousands was uh was excellent. I think that that these are probably you know in in podcast form, especially and us kicking it around. Their their fantasy booking is what we call it in. And I'm a wrestling fan. I'm a wrestling mm-hmm. mark. So it's your fantasy booking what could have happened, all these different dominoes. There's no way to know for sure. But but I think genuinely it's probably if there's something that's, you know, uh, bar talk in just kind of using hypotheticals to keep a conversation going, I've always really loved those what ifs. So genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, anytime in the future, if you have one that's even just kind of good, call me. We get you on the show. We'll talk about a what if, and we'll kick it around. That's um, that. That's, that's that sounds good. I'm sure as as I'm kind of digging around with some other research projects, and I find some more prehistoric football kind of stuff. Um, I'd, I'd be happy to come talk about it. Awesome, awesome. So let's let's kind of cover. So uh, as you may have heard, we are in uncertain times, and it is uh, it is April 30th at the recording of this podcast, and there's some states opening up. And I kind of wanted to also talk to you because you are uh, you looking at college football through a lens that a lot of other writers don't to speak about kind of COVID-19 and their effects that they're having on athletic departments, ultimately what it's going to affect on college football, uh, revenue, etc. So I guess with with what you know or what you've heard, what do you feel like coming into this 2020 college football season is the best case scenario if everything kind of pans out the way it's been panning out lately it is really difficult for me right now to imagine that football starts exactly on time with full stadiums everything as currently scheduled 
That, that isn't to say that it can't happen, right? I'm definitely not an epidemiologist. Uh, I'm not going to cosplay one on Twitter. Like <laughs> I, I think maybe <laughs> yeah. some other people have, but based on the decisions that schools are already making about their summer terms um, and the risk profile that schools have to carry here, I, I think that's unlikely. The best case scenario, I, my guess is that we have a season that that's is plays the full schedule, but just starts a month or month or so late. Um, but there's a whole litany of other possibilities, right? Like I, I think the idea of playing football in February and trying to cram two seasons into one year, I think that can, could certainly happen. We could have a truncated season. We might end up doing a little bit in the fall and a little bit in the spring. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to rule anything conclusively out. What, what, I, what I, I do feel comfortable saying is that uh, based on every conversation I've had and every, everything that I've read, that universities are going to move heaven and earth to have some kind of football season. And the biggest reason for that is because they are financially be, beholden to it. Just the bigger the school you are, and weirdly enough, the more beholden you are to it because you get the gigantic broadcasting money and you have all that ticket money, all the $9 beers and $40 parking spaces and all the, the specific donations are all tied to that. And that's what keeps that the whole behemoth going. It's interesting. We could probably not have an FCS football season. And I don't think that would be a catastrophe for many of those schools. And a couple of schools might actually end up saving money. Um, but at the, at the higher end, not having a football would be, would be catastrophic. Um, so yeah. Uh, building on, on you just something you hit on really quickly and, and being beholden to the stadiums themselves. I, I too, if I had to look in a crystal ball, think there's probably going to be some form of a football season, but I, I cannot imagine there being a stadium that's going to actually have people in it. If only because I, only if it, it makes me nervous, I guess, you know, it's probably a selfish thing to say, but like, I don't want to see that many people at Neyland, like, and potentially getting that many more people sick, you know, or whatever else. If there isn't, or if there aren't fans in the stands and you're losing that revenue, how badly will both major conference programs and smaller conference, your G5, P5, how much will they be affected with that loss? Well, I, I think first, I... I'm a little bit more skeptical that we'd be, we'd be doing things with empty stadiums. And there's, there's two reasons for that. One is just the very nature of football. Um, even if you have a completely empty stadium, when you look at the, all the roster sizes and all the assistant coaches and all of the officials and the medical trainers and presumably the bare minimum staff that you need to broadcast the game, you're looking at 400 people. You can't socially distance those 400 yeah, people. And if for football in particular – if you're playing at the line of scrimmage, you are literally breathing on a dude for two hours. So from I, I I've had I had the same thought. It seems to be it seems to make sense. But every doctor I've talked to um, has said like those people are still going to be at risk. The players are still going to be at risk. And even if you are able to instantaneously test all of them before the game starts, someone's going to test positive over the course of the season, um, and then you're going to have to retest everybody and everything. That's that's going to be. Uh, a big challenge. And I actually think the NFL could probably do it because they can have a collective bargaining agreement and those guys all make a gajillion dollars. Um, <laughs> so that optics of that are a little bit more understandable. The other thing, and I think a lot of university leaders are very cognizant of this, but they're a little afraid to say this explicitly is if you are telling your students, it's too dangerous for you to come to campus or we cannot effectively run in-person uh, coursework and it's too dangerous for you to come into stands and watch this game but the players still play that kind of nukes any argument you could possibly have that this is an amateur enterprise and that these players are just like any other any other student and if you do that that means you are going to get hauled back into court and that is exhibit a b c and d for the next antitrust uh, uh trial that, that you're facing and however much money you're going to lose by not having people in the stands and it's a a significant amount of money. Uh, it's less money than you're going to lose if, um, you know, you, you lose another O'Bannon. Um, so I, I think, I imagine some schools are going to try it, but there's going to be a lot of pushback to having any kind of, of, of event 
where you couldn't have at least some fans. Like I wouldn't be shocked if Nayland and Ohio Stadium and Beaver Stadium end up operating with lower capacity, but still bring in thirty. If you can, if you have thirty five thousand people in that stadium, you can you can space them out pretty good in one, in one of these gigantic cathedrals, and, and maybe that works. Um, but uh, but otherwise, yeah, you're still selling more tickets than most. Most smaller yeah. programs across yeah. the Yeah, I mean, and, and you might take a loss. You're, you're going to have to lay some people off and some people are going to have to take pay cuts and, and maybe you can't have a small armada of analysts. But um, I think that's a more realistic look at this. Okay, so before we jump to maybe what a worst case scenario looks like, I, I mentioned in, in, in some of the questions that I sent you about decisions that these schools are going to have to make and potentially that they're going to make that are are going to affect the trajectory of something like coaching salaries. So Boise State got furloughed, right? Their coaching staff. And there's, I think I just saw it was like Les Miles and Self at Kansas. They're taking 10% less. And I imagine that's, if not, there's, there's plenty more names I'm sure that I'm missing here, but there's, it's going to continue for some of these schools to save money and states to save money. Do you think that there's a long-term effect from this COVID-19, whether it be a normalization of coach salaries or maybe a better balancing of the budget and, and some hard decisions on some programs for athletic departments that are, that are in the future because of this? So there, there's two forces, I think, that actually could combine to, to create that normalization. I'm, I'm going to get in the weeds here. So um, I'm here. Apologies. Apologies in advance. I think it's important for fans to realize what was happening before COVID-19, which has led to, I think a lot of universities and athletic departments being in a difficult spot. So this was not a good time for us higher education. Generally, many of these schools are, are, we're, we're facing some financial challenges. And one of those is the fact that our country simply does not is not producing the same number of, of college-bound high school students uh, as we did 20 years ago. And so schools then either have watched their enrollment drop or they have to go recruit international students, which are, are more lucrative because those play those students usually pay full tuition. But now we are seeing a world where recruiting kids from South Korea and India and China is more expensive. It's more difficult. And um, we might have some visa changes. You're simply not going to be able to get those those kids here. Um, So that's problem number one. Problem number two, especially for public institutions, is that you're also usually facing – declining state involvement or state funding for your university, and it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. Because if you're trying to balance state budget – Often, your uh, your state constitution says you have to spend at least this money, at least this much money on K-12 education and on your state prison system and on Medicaid and on your, your roads. And generally, one of the only places of what we call discretional, just, uh, discretionary spending is with higher education. And so naturally, that gets, that's, what gets, that's what gets cuts. That's what gets cut. Excuse me. Um, So you have a lot of public schools that are getting just a fraction of what they were getting from their state 15 years ago. So already not really a great time for higher ed. Then this happens where you're looking at just pouring gasoline on those trends. Everybody is expecting their enrollment to drop significantly in the near future. And that's really important for an athletic department because almost every FBS department and certainly way more across Division One get money from student fees. That is usually what gives you a lot more money than your um, your ticket sales or your, uh, your your broadcast agreement if you're not a Power Five program. So if you suddenly have a thousand you know a thousand less kids come to campus, that's a thousand less six hundred dollar checks that, that you're getting for your student fees. So that's a huge yeah. income drop. Um, so that's all of those things together are going to put a lot of cost pressure all over universities. The other thing that that's happening right now is with name, image, and likeness. And I, I promise this ties in the NCAA on Wednesday and their report said that they want to petition Congress to give them an antitrust exemption. What that means is then you can't sue the NCAA for restricting the amount of money that a player could get from their name, image and likeness. What the NCAA would like to do is say, hey, uh, uh, freshman, I noticed that you are bad at football and you don't have a really big Instagram account. And this car dealership wants to pay you fifteen thousand um, dollars. That's not fair market value. You can only accept six. And right now, that player would go, like, hell, it does. Fair market values. Well, whatever somebody will pay me, I'll see your ass in court. And they would win. 
the only way that the feds are going to give an, an antitrust exemption, and even this I think is unlikely, is if they make the NCAA do a bunch of other things. And one of those things, and I've, I've heard two athletic directors actually propose this, is a salary cap for coaches. So the government could say, you can't restrict what a kid can make unless we say football coaches can't make more than $2 million, or that schools can't charge more than X amount for, for student fees. Wow. So I think those two things potentially together uh, could certainly combine where we just can't spend nearly as much money as we've been as we have been collectively on salaries, on travel, on facilities, and on analysts and, and staff. Um, the Nick Sabans are, and the Ryan Days and the Harbaugh's are still going to get paid, but the the world of paying a group of five coach two million dollars a year, I don't think that's going to continue. That's fascinating. It's- Purely because I'm wondering how much that could have an effect on coach movement. You know, ten, if if it starts now in ten years, decisions to go from one school to another, if that is changed when there's essentially a, a, a cap from your earnings, you're not really able to chase the almighty dollar if you're already up at near that cap, and you're at say Old Dominion or whatever school it might be. What's the incentive to make that same amount of money at a higher pressure job, perhaps at Virginia Tech or whatever it could, you know, whatever scenario that could lay out? Yeah, it, it would surprise me a little bit if we had a salary cap that was low enough where both Old Dominion and Ohio State could hit it. But I, I think we can already see a world where some of these changes are going to re- change coaching movement. I'll tell you, this is true right now. Nobody wants to be paying a coach buyout right now. The fact that Wake Forest's basketball just got rid of Danny Manning is, is really a, a huge surprise. That was the only bit of basketball program in the Power Five um, that that made a coaching change. And so what's going to happen next year is you're going to look at this. And if you got a coach that's uh, maybe in a, in a kind of marginal position, um, you're not going to want to – to let that guy go early uh, and, and be stuck paying that buyout, which is what, you know, like Nebraska, I think is paying $20 million right now in buyouts for, for football and, and men's basketball and schools just can't many schools. Some, some still will. If Alabama wants to get rid of a guy, they're going to get rid of a guy. But a lot of these schools that they, that simply is not their financial reality anymore. So they're going to be more conservative with, with making changes. My, my, my assumption is whenever we have a football off season, that's going to be a pretty slow coaching carousel. And you added that, added to the fact that the economy and the hit that it's taken. So your potential boosters anyhow are going to be, in in theory, limited on their spending towards a school to help with a situation like that at all anyways. Yeah, I, I've been writing about this a little bit on Extra Points. And you're, you're absolutely right. Like in, in a world where we have 18% unemployment um, – <laughs> a lot of people's disposable income is, is going to be down, but that impacts different schools in different ways. You know, as I'm sure you're aware and you're neck of the woods uh, for where you grew up. Um, if oil crude oil is going for 18 bucks a barrel, um, that limits what the people who give money to Houston are going to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. If, it, it, it hurts. Uh, it hurts SMU out <laughs> in a, a pretty significant sense. Uh, it, it does. And I mean, I would say that probably hurts every public school in Texas too, because that means less tax money available, but it hurts TCU. It hurts SMU. It hurts Baylor. If these casinos are closed another month or two, uh, that sucks for UNLV. <laughs> that sucks for anybody that, that yep. counts people who work in hotels or gaming as, as major donors. And I, I bet the smart thing to do right now, if you're a school is to go figure out who owns this chain of grocery stores, you know, who owns it, who's got <laughs> yeah. that zoo money. Yeah. Where does that, got where, that where, where, money? Where, did, where did Mr. Tom, where did Mr. Uh, uh, Kroger go to school at? Let's yeah. see if he's, he's willing to do a yeah. speech and get an honorary degree. That's that. That's kind of the world that, that we're going to be in. It's 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 weird because this economy is kind of being impacted in, in different places. If you have a local economy that's really dependent on one or two industries, yeah, that that kills your donations. It kills your ticket sales. It kills kills a lot of things. So this will kind of uh, book in the conversation and kind of see us out. Speaking of you know something like gambling having an effect. There's a lot of regional schools in Oklahoma, the Southwest Oklahoma's, the Northeast Oklahoma states, those schools that will probably be affected to a point potentially of, of closing their doors completely or at least heavily limiting what kind of programs they have in their athletic department. And there's a list of about 16 FBS schools currently that have the minimum 
which is 16, number of sports. So they're going to have to reduce their spending, as, as I understand it. This was posted by a guy, a user Bill, uh, Bulls at Buffalo on the college football subreddit. Uh, so these schools that need the waiver to be able to cut other sports, or they'll have to reduce spending on football programs. And there's Arkansas State, Buffalo, Georgia States. The only ones that really kind of stick out are your Kansas States and Mississippi States. But there's North Texas, there's the Rice Owls, there's Ohio. Do you expect there to be? I, I keep asking you if you expect it, and I'm I'm not trying to make you a, to be a, a, a prognosticator here or. or or, you know, fortune teller. Do you expect there to be less football programs in the United States, say, next January? Nationally, I definitely expect that. And that's just because I anticipate a lot of Division Two, Three, and NAIA schools are going to straight up close. Uh, this already happened recently with a school not too far from where I grew up, Urbana University in Ohio. Uh, was actually a pretty decent Division II team. You know, I, I think they won seven or eight games. They were competing at the top end of their conference, and the, they didn't drop football. They dropped the school. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, of private liberal arts colleges in the Midwest and Northeast that have under 1,500 students and are simply not built to survive one really bad year. They're not built to, to pivot to distance learning. Um, and some of them have football teams, and they're going to, they're going to get dropped. I think at the FBS level, um, it, it, maybe not in one year, but I do think it is definitely possible at the next two or three. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the the two places that I, I would look at this. One would be in the MAC, particularly with around northeastern Ohio. Akron and Kent State are two of the uh, I think most resource challenged programs in, in FBS. That they both have been mostly lousy in their histories. Um, both of those schools have announced they're cutting 20% of their entire budget. And Akron's president, who's relatively new, I believe, is straight up said, like, you know, our athletic department's going to be less ambitious. It's going to have a smaller physical footprint. We're going to, I'm worried about the trajectory of mid-major athletics right now. So we're going to make some hard choices. So I'm not saying that they're going to get out of the game now, but if you're looking at this and in order for Akron to even make bowl games in the MAC, they're going to have to make some big changes, seeing as they were the worst team in FBS last year. Um, in Ohio political circles, it's long been rumored that Kent and Akron and YSU, Youngstown State, could potentially just merge. You know, this is a part of the state that's just lost a lot of population. It probably can't support three, you know, similarly sized resource universities all relatively close together. So that, you know, that's one place. And I, I think in the Northeast, too. I know that UMass and UConn say they are committed to a Division One FBS independent life. Um, and I think that they were when they said all those things. It's possible that this is kind of the two by four that breaks the camel's back. Um, and if they're not able to create an East Coast regionalized conference, which is, I, I think, another thing that could really happen out of this, I think we're probably going to see some conference realignment. I could see them deciding we, we really need to focus on the stuff that best serves our student experience and being the 126th FBS program right now probably isn't it. But uh, it would surprise me if more than, than like around like FBS teams leaving FBS or leaving football at one and a half in the next three years, I'd probably go under. It is. Uh, I hadn't really even considered the really, really tiny programs. We live uh, a couple stones throws away from Belmont Abbey and there's Davidson in North Charlotte, which is where, where me and, and my other two hosts currently live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with those enrollments at, you know, 1900, 1400 and relatively cheap in-state tuition, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a greater than zero chance. They have some incredible, incredible, uh, financial hardships. I, I do wonder the regional aspect, I think that is, that seems like the most common sense solution for anyone that would be on the bubble. For Kennesaw State to travel to UMass seems unnecessary when they can potentially go and play Georgia State. You know, I, I know I'm, I'm mixing, I'm <laughs> crisscrossing conferences and divisions here, but but there's... I'm kind of, I'm honestly kind of here for it. A more regional 
aspect because I haven't gone to a Davidson football game because honestly I could even tell you what conference they're in. I don't watch college basketball. <laughs> like it's just not my not my yeah. bag. You know, I think they're so in like the pioneer. If I knew Davidson was playing Belmont Abbey, who lives right down the street from me, I'd be more inclined to check out that basketball game, you know, or whatever else it might be. Yeah, yeah, Davidson. I think they're in the Atlantic Ten, if I remember right. So yeah, they're they're playing right. a lot a lot of schools much farther north. Um, I think you're right, and this is you know I've talked to a, a fair number of people because this is how Division Two is is usually structured and how Division Three is usually structured, and you might even have really quite some pretty big differences in the resources for those schools. You might have a, a, a much larger public institution in Division Two that's very uh, as high resource in the same division, same conference as, um, you know, some school with 1800 people that that's, that's much smaller. That's, that's, but they're close together. You save money. That make that makes sense. at division two, the, the place, the two places where I think you are most likely to see some changes. One is going to be with Olympic sports. I would not be surprised, especially at the G five level to see more Olympic sports be completely decoupled from major conferences so like the Mountain West or Conference USA, the Sun Belt might say, hey, listen, if it makes more geographic sense for your soccer team to play in a different league, you don't have to play in our soccer league. Or maybe we need to start – maybe there needs to be another soccer league. Like there's one just for swimming, and there's a, a couple of Western athletic leagues for just for sports that the Pac-12 doesn't play. Right. Um, I think you're unlikely to see that with the Big Ten and SEC because even things like swimming and softball have financial value for those networks. But there's no reason to force every American – uh, every colonial athletic, every A10 Olympic sports team to all play in that league if they can save money elsewhere. Um, the other place where I think you could see it is with Conference USA, which is I think pretty visibly a geographically disparate league where it doesn't it just doesn't make sense. You can't yeah. sell tickets. You can't really sell have a, a cohesive identity. I know that there are players that don't like going from Virginia Beach to El Paso, um, even if it doesn't happen very often. Uh, I would not be shocked if we end up seeing some kind of new league configuration that centers around the Atlantic coast for G5 programs where, where the uh, Marshalls and the ODUs and the Western Kentuckys and the middle Tennessees and maybe Liberty. If, if schools get desperate enough and maybe James Madison and maybe even some teams from FCS decide to, to spin off and create something that's much more geographically tight. Um, and let Conference USA be a Texas and Florida and Deep South kind of league. That'd be that'd be fascinating. I'd like that conference too. And even if you if you ended up just having the mixing pot too, whether it be Conference USA with a touch of the Sun Belt or a touch of the American, people having to make those decisions because Tulane maybe not be able to to keep traveling all the way to play Temple. Yep. Uh, Regionally, it would. I, I know it would mean more. It just does. I mean, you you being from or you living in Ohio, um, and growing up there. I actually so live in Chicago in that region. But yeah, I'm I'm from Ohio. You're right. Like if you if you're a baseball team in Ohio, you could play an entire dang schedule and never leave the state. Yep. And just that division. Yeah, and, and and there's there's like three counties next to each other in Texas where it's the same. Same same scenario. You have, you know, uh, nine nine college football teams at every level within the DFW Metroplex. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I mean, I don't think you'd want to have SMU play against some Division three team necessarily. Um, but there 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 could be a world where it makes sense for Sam Houston or. Probably not Lamar because I think I think they're not very good. But you know, a couple of some some teams from like the the Southwest. Uh, yeah, FCS. Stephen F. Austin yeah. is, has got a pretty good reputation. Yeah, out yeah there. that's that, that's something out there. Yeah, and have them play UTSA, um, and adjust some scholarship rules or something to to make to make that work. I think it will be easier to sell tickets at that level when you actually know alumni from that other school and can dunk on them in person. Than yep. when they're six days away, because because if, if you if yeah if you're in the DFW, you're going to know people that went to Sam Houston, and you're going to know people that went to Stephen F. Austin, and and those other schools. But if you're in Texas, how many how many ODU grads do you know? Right, there's there's yeah. none. You know you yeah. know more Abilene Christian <laughs> uh, yeah. graduates. You know it, it's and and let me tell you, Sam Houston State graduates absolutely have a type. You can spot them out in a group of ten. 
uh, <laughs> as I'm sure there's the case with some other Ohio schools. So, uh, Matt, I, I sincerely thank you for coming by. Before before we kind of wrap things up, if there's anything else you want to touch on, feel free. But I mostly want to make sure you get out the word on your newsletter. Uh, if you want to re-up the book, your Twitter, everything that people would need to know to support Matt, Matt Brown. Sure. Well, uh, as you all may, may be aware, uh, I no longer work at SB Nation, unfortunately. I was furloughed, and then they offered me a buyout, and I took that. So uh, I'm going to be fun employed here for a minute. <laughs> um, if, you, if, if you're just listening this far on the podcast and you're interested in some of these, this history and the, the culture and the context and the finances and all this other stuff that really shapes football, I think you'd love Extra Points. Extra Points publishes four days a week. You can subscribe for free and get two of those uh, newsletters a week. Um, if you're willing, if you pay a subscription, you get all four plus some extra bonus content. The subscription is seven bucks a month. Uh, that's less than what you know a, a Culver's value meal, I think. Uh, or you can pay uh, seventy bucks a year. Um, look, I look, I'm a son of the Midwest, man. I love me some Culver's. <laughs> no, they brought a Culver's to to Dallas, and it was so good, man. It was, yeah, well, I just forgot I, it existed. Yeah, well, when we when we all get out of here, um, my friends, if you're listening and you have a chance to go get some deep fried cheese curds at your local Culver's, they're not a sponsor, but um, <laughs> big no. big personal fan. So, so you, you can get that. I wrote a book called "What If Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions." Uh, that's on Amazon. It's sixteen bucks. Um, it's not. It's uh, or you can just get at the library. It's okay. I, I just like you to read it. If if you buy it, that's great because I get three or four dollars. But if you just read it at the library, that's fine too. Um, and that's, that's the best way to support me. So I'm, I'm going to probably announce other freelance projects or some other hustles that I'm going to be doing on extra points. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Brown EP. Thank you, Matt. And, and sincerely just, just tagging on the back of what Matt said in, in a time like this, where there's so little going on actually with college football, besides a little bit of recruiting here and there. What Matt provides is such a cool, like you, to still increase your knowledge and it not be necessarily X's and O's, but the history of the game and stuff. It, I find it invaluable. I know it's not everybody's bag, but I think most people that listen to this show that it would be. Uh, and I sincerely urge you to support Matt. Do whatever you can. Uh, throw him your money. Um, send him formula. Do you have any kids, Matt? I- <laughs> I, I, I do. I have a five-year-old and I have a two-year-old. So the, I, I joke about that. a formula. This. No formula then. Uh, no, no formula, uh, but brother, it's chicken nuggets, man. This 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 goes into the diaper and chicken nugget budget. Yeah, the chicken and fries. I have a three-year-old and she is – that's all – chicken and fries as soon as we get in the car. That's where she thinks we're going is to pick up, to pick up uh, yeah. some Chick-fil-A. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm begging my children to, to eat a vegetable once in their life or, or something that's not a processed carbohydrate, but um, that, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's I'm going uphill there. I got lucky, man. My kid eats asparagus like it's candy. It's the, it's honestly, it grosses me out the way she eats it. <laughs> it's completely like the stem, the wrong side up. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cut it out. Um, guys, thank you all for listening. Matt, sincerely, thank you for coming by. You're welcome back anytime. We're a production of fifthquarter.net. Check it out. Uh, Discord, forums, articles, uh, us being the podcast. Follow us again at RunPodOption on Twitter. Follow Matt at MattBrownEP on Twitter. And be safe out there. Hi, my name is Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And we are the hosts of a statistics and sports podcast called Juicing the Numbers. We cover the NFL, college football, MLB and the NHL with anything that we like to talk about in between. If you like sports and the numbers behind it, come check out our show, Juicing the Numbers, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at JuicingPOD.